Hello, and welcome to The Balance with Catlin Tucker, presented by StudySync. I'm Catlin Tucker. I'm a teacher, a coach, a blended learning expert with a particular interest in finding balance, which I talk about in my upcoming book, Balance with Blended Learning. Today, my guest is Adam Welcome, an experienced educator, speaker, writer, and co-founder of Kids Deserve It. Welcome, Adam. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast, and I'd love for you to kick off this episode by telling us a little bit about your experience in education. Hey, Catelyn, thanks for having me. My journey of education kind of like fell into education, I would say, but not because I grew up in it. My dad taught second grade in in Richmond for like 35 years. So I grew up going to school with him and just hearing the the conversations um, about education. And he was also a school board member where we lived. And then time came for me to have a career and I got my credential and uh, it's been their way ever since. Just a teacher and a vice principal and a principal and then my last job was a really cool, probably the coolest job I've ever had. I was a director of innovation for a large district in the um, in the Bay Area, fifty schools, thirty five thousand students, and I just did, quote unquote, all the cool stuff like coding and robotics and flexible seating and YouTube creation, and worked with parent groups on social media basics and keeping kids safe online. It was just uh, I had a team of teachers, and it was just. It was like the candy store for the educator that is just creative and wants to do whatever they want. That was that job. It was a. Uh, it, oh, it was pretty that awesome. So fun. So fun. Yeah. And then I left. So because <laughs> to, <laughs> to pursue other uh, other endeavors, but uh, while I did it, it was amazing for sure. Yeah, I've always wondered what directors of innovation do because it does sound like a pretty epic title. And if you have that kind of flexibility, just have fun and experiment, I could see that being a really attractive position. Yeah, completely. So in your book, you encourage teachers to kind of take risks, embrace the unfamiliar, do what's best for kids, even if that is in kind of stark contrast to the school culture in which they teach. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to teachers who are scared of how leadership or their fellow teachers or the parents of their students will react to their decision to kind of carve their own path and pursue learning that doesn't fit in a pacing guide and might seem unconventional to some of these stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten so many messages and calls from people um, since the book has come out. And, you know, I, I was kind of that person. My dad was that person where they looked at their class and looked at what their colleagues were doing in the pacing guides and realized, gosh, my kids are bored. That was me. I changed my teaching style when I was 24 years old because I looked at my class and I realized like they were bored. If I'm bored, they're bored. We have to do it a little bit differently. So knowing that within your pacing guides, you have freedom. You have freedom to move around. And I mean, gosh, talk about to the work that you've done with blended learning and um, project-based learning if you're just teaching to one standard or you're teaching to the test, you're teaching probably only a few kids in your classroom. But if you have blended learning or project-based learning and you you have get you, you get kids moving around with with technology or robots or just cardboard, whatever it is, it doesn't need to be technology-based, you're gonna teach two or three or four standards within that one lesson, within that pacing guide. If you pull out a few standards within that pacing guide and you project-based learn it or you give kids cardboard and tell them to build something that they're learning about in social studies or science, there's art in there. There's C 
sequencing, there's math concepts, and they're learning about social studies. So the message of kids deserve it is to think about it a little bit differently. And you're not going to get in trouble if you throw in some creativity, just sprinkle on some creativity. And I'm not telling people to, (laughs) I think there's a, I think we've gone a little bit too far to the right with engagement. And some people think that they work on a cruise ship. And I tell people, (laughs) you, you, you don't, you don't work on a cruise ship and the sustainability of, decorating and dressing up and doing, you know, like you're on a cruise ship. And if you're on a, I've never been on a cruise, but people that go on a cruise tell me every, if you go on a week long cruise every day, the people that work there are excited and there's something going on. And that's not sustainable for 180 days a year. So I think that is such a great point that (laughs) that issue of sustainability in education, I think that is something we should be talking about Mm -hmm. all of the time. Are the things that we doing, we are doing sustainable. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't want my teachers there to, there till seven o'clock at night, twice a week, decorating or doing things just to entertain kids. Engagement is different than entertainment. And taking a risk is different than uh, going by the book. It's having a little bit, little bit of wiggle room. And I would tell my teachers, hey, if the parents love you and the kids are excited to go to school and parents aren't calling the superintendent about me and parents are raving about school and kids can't wait to go to school and we have very little discipline because kids are engaged in class. By the way, the best discipline program is an engaged classroom. You don't need Agreed. you don't need clip charts, you don't need PBIS, you don't need all these other things. You get kids busy and engaged and don't give them a worksheet. They don't have time to get in trouble. You can do whatever you want because the parents are going to back you up and they go, "Hey, pacing guide plus some of this and some of this and some of this." Heck yeah. You can't tell who in your class has an IEP or may be an English learner or may be behind a grade level in a certain subject because they're moving, they're thinking, they're talking. And when we know better, we should do better. So take the pacing guide. Don't ditch it. Use it as a resource. Um, and also think a little bit differently, but don't entertain the kids. I think that we have to give our schools back to our kids on so many levels too many teachers do for kids what they can do for themselves. And oh my gosh, yes. Leaders do for teachers what they should do for themselves. And mm-hmm. you know, some of it is ego. Some of it is not knowing what to do. And they're just a little bit worried because they're not the expert. And I tell people when I speak, don't worry about becoming the expert in coding or robotics or whatever. You are the expert in curriculum, kids, and relationships. And you focus on that and you have 24 kids in your class, you build 24 little experts and three of them are experts in one thing and two kids are experts in this. You have them help teach their colleagues or the classroom next door. You focus on what you're the expert in and then you're going to have more confidence. But people just don't do things because they're not, they're not secure in it, they're not confident um, or they think that it's their classroom and they have to be the one in charge. Like you are in charge. Teachers are important. They are more important than ever. I just think they're important in different ways. When we were in school, they were the purveyor of all the knowledge. It was the Encyclopedia Britannica model of education. They went to school, (laughs) they knew everything, and they taught us. Now, I think teachers should be the facilitator of the learning experience. 
they're still teaching, but they're approaching it and they're facilitating that learning in a different way. You're going to reach more students. You're going to reach the students in the middle, the ones that need intervention, also the gifted and talented students, which I don't think that we talk about enough. They're an at-risk population as well. And if we don't reach them and push them, they're not reaching their full potential. So somewhat organized chaos at times in a classroom means kids are learning. Quiet, (laughs) compliant, is not engaged. It is not learning. Can I just say that compliance is one of my least favorite words (laughs) ever? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I hate hearing it in the context of education. And I think what you're saying speaks to so much of what I am personally passionate about, what has driven a lot of my work, which is this idea that teachers should not be at the center of the learning happening. They should not be doing the lion's share of the work in the classroom. The students have to be at the center of learning. And you're absolutely right. They are so incredibly creative and capable. And yet in so many classrooms, they are relegated to these very passive positions, sitting, listening, consuming, And we've trained them. We've trained them for years that that's what's expected. And so it's interesting. I found that as we start to shift students to that center, sometimes they push back because they're like, Mm -hmm. hey, lady, um, this isn't what I do. I kind of sit quietly and listen. And you're asking me to lean in and take risks and have conversations and create things. And that's a big ask. But I do think it is what makes the educational experience so stimulating and rewarding for kids. As an educator, I want teachers to think about when you're designing a lesson, are you engaged? Are you inspired? Are you excited? If yes, great. Uh, How do you spend more time on that? Are there ways in which you can shift some of your teaching responsibilities into the classroom, say giving feedback as students are working or making some time, you know, once a grading period to grade a big assessment with kids sitting next to you? What can you do so that maybe you're taking home less of one thing and spending that time in a part of your job on a responsibility associated with teaching that you really enjoy, that lights you up, that you find energizing. If when you're lesson planning, you feel drained, you feel defeated, you feel frustrated. I think that's a moment when we have to pause and we need to think about what is holding me back? What is making me feel drained? Why do I feel like I don't want to do this part of my job? Is it pacing guides? Is it the curriculum? Is it district mandated assessments or a particular initiative? Because once you identify what that is, then you can address it. Then you can figure out how do I make changes so that I can spend more time focused on the things in my job that bring me joy and less time on the things that drain me of my energy, of my enthusiasm, of my engagement levels. Well, how can we expect kids when they leave high school and they go to college or they skip college and they start a trade or they start their own company at 19, which is what I would have done if I was a high school senior right now. How can we expect them to 
problem solve and to think creatively and to think outside the box and to do something different. If we never, ever, ever give them the opportunity to do that in school, if we are only following the pacing guides and we have them you know, move classrooms from bell to bell, like bells belong in prisons, bells don't, don't belong in schools. <laughs> Why should we tell kids when they should and shouldn't learn? How can we expect them to go, go do anything if we never give them the opportunity? Absolutely. I think... I think high school is the new college. I think high school should be the new college from a standpoint of the internships that, that I did in, high, in college at the local boys and girls club, or I, I, I lived in New York for a summer and worked at a, at a startup way back when. All that should be happening in high school now under the support, under the umbrella of, of their teachers and their parents living at home. Or they, they start that new entrepreneurial business while they're in high school. I, I mean, kids should, if you have a phone or a cool camera, go to every realtor mm-hmm. in town and tell them, I'm going to make a video about the housing, the houses that you're going to sell. Two-minute marketing video. We're going to put it on Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok because we're going to try to, and YouTube, and we're going we're, we're to run Facebook ads because I want to... I want to get to a whole new um, group of people that are not getting that little mailer in the mail. Or I'm going to go to the local car dealership and talk to the general manager and say, what are the top 15 cars that you can't sell? We're going to make a little 45-second video marketing that car, putting it on these social media channels that a lot of adults don't understand what's going on. And if you sell that car within three weeks, you give us $50. And you know what? That's the internship that you st- you would go go to an internship. You'd wear a suit and tie. They wouldn't let you do anything. You just sat there and don't touch anything. Right. <laughs> kids, kids don't need that anymore. Kids can do it themselves. They just need the door open. They only need, need the door open a little bit, Catlin. It doesn't even need to be fully open. It's cracked open a little bit. They're going to walk through. We don't need to change everything and bring everything over. But the parts that really resonated with me in college were some of those internships, were some of those classes and those experiences where I was able to be creative. Don't wait till college. Do it now in high school. Yeah. And even for the teachers who might feel like, whoa, that feels like a lot, there are all of these baby steps that they can take. So if kids are doing a research project or they're researching for you know a project-based learning kind of endeavor... I am the first person to say, yes, online resources are great, books are great, but there are actual experts you can connect with online, Mm -hmm. via social media, that can actually help you to develop your understanding of these concepts. And once you've finished this project or whatever the task or endeavor is, you have access to a global audience. And so if you can help foster kind of the connections between students and those experts by, like you say, open the door, help them to navigate online spaces, you know, do some safety netiquette stuff if you're have some fears, but don't close the door because you're afraid. Mm -hmm. Help to facilitate those relationships between your students and people in the world who have expertise and facilitate the sharing of their ideas. I think too often, like you said, we're closing these doors, we're creating these robust filters that really limit the students' opportunities to access expertise and information and this authentic audience, which can be such incredible drivers in terms of motivating learning and motivating their excitement and their curiosity about what they're investigating or working on. 
I think as teachers, we need to let go of this idea that we have to be the experts and really know, as Adam says, that our jobs are about building relationships with kids, opening doors for them, helping to make connections, helping to support, facilitate. All of those pieces are so powerful, but they're different. They're different from how many of us have pictured educators in the past. But I think that the unprecedented access that everyone has now to information really necessitates that we take a good hard look at how we spend our time in classrooms and what are our roles and responsibilities as teachers and how are they changing because of this unprecedented access to information and expertise and to other people beyond the classroom and how can we leverage that connectivity for learning and help our kids to realize that they can do so much valuable work beyond these four walls of our classroom. So I want to ask you about your most recent book, Empower Our Girls. So I have a girl, a 12-year-old daughter. You you have kids. I have an eight-year-old daughter and a six-year-old boy, yes. All right. And so was your daughter part of the inspiration for this book? Was (laughs) the book inspired by some imbalance that you see in the way that girls are treated in educational and kind of other spaces? Yeah, you you, you totally saw the writing on the wall. So about 10 years, I just turned 40. Yeah, 10 years ago, I was a principal and it was my first year as a principal. And coding was a thing, but it wasn't like a thing in schools but I'd read so much about coding and I, I told myself, we have to, we have to code at my school. I just know that it's important. Kids are problem solving. It's, it's something that's happening. And code.org hadn't even been invented yet. I used some other, I forget what program I used, but I started a coding club and I had 20 kids sign up. It was every Monday at 7 a.m. and we coded for an hour. And I looked at the Google form and there was 20 kids and there was one girl that signed up. And wow. I'm going to tell you that my daughter was 18 months old, maybe two years old. You know, Catlin, it hit me in the face. And I was like, where are, where are the girls? You know, and like, I knew plenty of female students at my school. I knew them well. I knew their parents. And I started to dig deeper. And the first thing that I did was I recruited. I went to lunch and I was like, hey, did you hear about the coding club? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you need to join. And they're like, okay. I called parents. I said, your daughter needs to do this. It's going to be amazing. So (laughs) I very quickly, I shifted the imbalance and we had, I ended up with, I think, 35 students, you know, half boys, half girls. Less than 5% of startups are owned by women. Uh, mm-hmm. Women do not are underrepresented in politics. It's getting better, but in in technology and in CEO and in in, in, in leadership positions, and uh, you know it needs to change. I saw something. I watched the U.S. Open a couple of weeks ago, and there was a picture of Bianca, the, the champion from Canada, and Billie Jean King. And there was a uh, there was a note that said. Bianca said, thank you, Billie Jean King, because in 1976, Billie Jean King refused to play the U.S. Open unless the women made the same amount of money as the men. And thankfully, Billie Jean King, she did that. But you know what? The fight is not over. And um, I've gotten some flack from people that how can a male write about this? And I'm like, you know what? It is not a female issue. It's a human issue. And men have to be a part of the conversation to help change the conversation. Yeah. And I would say, you know what? 
boys are going to benefit if girls are elevated to a level kind of place, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's their aspirations or the level at which they feel supported. I don't know about you as a father of a, you know, one child that's boy and a girl, but I am so grateful that my two tiny humans are growing up together and challenging each other and our messaging about what they are both capable of is the same. Mm -hmm. I want my daughter to feel like she can do anything she wants. And I'm super lucky. I grew up in a home where I had this dynamic mother who's an attorney and she just carved a path in the early 70s where it was kind of unusual for women to go into law. And she has had an amazing career and she's so driven. And I never questioned whether I could do anything I put my mind to. Mm -hmm. So I know that the role model component of that is such an important piece. And I know you talk about that in your book too. Sure. So we know we have limited time and I want to switch gears because even though this is really the first time we have chatted in person, we follow each other on social media mm-hmm. and I know we share kind of a passion for exercise and nutrition. And I was reading your Run Like a Pirate book and in it you say, quote, <laughs> I've spent my life searching for more, for the next challenge, for bigger, better, harder. This approach to life is a commitment to doing what needs to be done in order to achieve more than ever before. And as I was reading your words, I was thinking, I could have written this. I'm <laughs> such a high achiever. Um, and so for me, that often ends up resulting in imbalance between mm. the things that I'm passionate about professionally and the rest of my life. So how do you try to maintain balance with all of the travel and the work that you do? Because I do know that you really do prioritize your health and your fitness mm-hmm. and your family. So what is that like for you? What advice do you have for people listening who are like, I don't know how this guy does everything he does? Yeah. And I get that a lot from people. <laughs> and I always tell people <laughs> I have 30 hours in the day because you have time for what you make time for. You got to have a list and your list can't be long. And I think a good analogy is if if people get a, a, a mason jar and you can fit three pretty decent sized rocks in that mason jar. But if you put a fourth rock in that mason jar, the jar's going to break. So depending on the size of the rock and how big, you can fit three, maybe four, but you can't fit 10. And too many people try to fit 10 large rocks into that jar. And the analogy is, you know, do three to five things in your life well. Do them deep, do them with fidelity. And for me, that's living a healthy lifestyle. That's my family. That's my work. And then there's always a couple other things hanging out in that ecosystem that I kind of bring in or push back out. And then around those big rocks, you can fit some smaller rocks. And those are the small things that you do day to day. Maybe it's the housework or the gardening, or you're in a book club, or you have a passion and you volunteer somewhere. Um, And you really got to be able to say no. And uh, I think too many people say yes. That has been something that I've improved upon, Catlin, because I have a, I have a, a tendency to say yes to too many things. And as I've gotten older and as I've gotten busier, I've really kind of narrowed that focus and said no to things, or I've said not yet. Or one of my favorite things to do is somebody says, hey, let's write a book together, or hey, let's do this. I say, you know what? Um, 
I'm full right now with my capacity, but you know what? Can I introduce you to somebody that I know that's really amazing? And I'll then connect somebody else that I know that I think will be a good connection with, with that person. And really kind of trying to bring other people from my ecosystem and share them with other people that they may not know yet. So um, I talk about a lot, a lot of strategies in Run Like a Pirate that I use. And working out is, it happens. It's not, if yeah. I make time, I mean, I got home at one in the morning from New York and red eyes and late travel. And I went for a 45 minute swim after I dropped my kids off, came home, and now we're recording a podcast. It's not like if I get a workout in, it's it's going to happen. When? Yeah. So yeah. Um, if it's important, you're going to find time. And uh, Oh, yeah. No, my husband thinks I am such a nut job because I literally, I'm like you, I'm flying in and out of SFO all the time. <laughs> and so I'm often working out in just kind of subpar hotel gyms. Mm-hmm. And I came home from a trip two weeks ago, and it was probably 8.15 at night by the time I got home, which is not late. It was actually an early evening for me. And I drop my stuff, and I run upstairs, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just going to go run the track for like 25 minutes. I need to get some of this, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, the plane off me Uh, and the travel. and." So I was out there with my headlamp mm-hmm. and my like my earbuds in and I came back in and he's like, I don't know how you do it. And I agree. It's about just being committed and doing what makes you feel good. And I'm very much a believer in a body in motion stays in motion. Mm-hmm. And I feel so much better when I'm taking care of myself in that way. You know, people just put too many things in their life that they have to maintain. Uh, if it's things in your house, if it's subscriptions and, and magazines that you never even read, but they come and then they 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 piles start building, and then you feel like you're and you feel like you're weighed down and you're not getting anything done. So I've always just my mindset is light and tight. If I don't have it, I can't use it. When there's fewer things, I, I don't I don't get bogged down in the minutia of things, mm-hmm. and you are able to be just to be lighter. It's like when I travel, like I've traveled a lot internationally when I was a single teacher and I would buy a ticket there and a ticket home. And I didn't make plans because when you're so locked into what you're going to do, you kind of, you, you know, you, you can't freelance when an opportunity comes up and, um, you know, it's just the same. And you know what? You feel better when I eat well and I always eat well, even on the road, sometimes not as good because it's hard to find, you know, it's hard to find what you eat, especially I live a kind (laughs) of, I live a California diet. And then you spend a lot of places, other parts of the country. It's like, wait, what do you eat? It's just, it's just different. You know, um, it's even more imperative, um, to, uh, to do that. I've landed before at one in the morning in St. Louis and dropped my stuff at the hotel went for an hour run, got two hours of sleep, woke up and then spoke and did workshops all day. But you know what? I felt better that day doing workshops because I had that hour run. Not because I didn't get an extra hour of sleep, but that run actually gave me more energy and more mojo and got my brain ready for the work that I had to do. And that doesn't happen overnight. Like, you know, it's a, it's a process, it's an evolution, but you have to be committed. And if it's important, you'll find time. If it's not important, you'll make an excuse. I love that. Well, that's the perfect place to end this. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me. It was a pleasure chatting.
For those teachers and educators who are listening to this and thinking, gosh, Catlin, I don't even know if I have 20 minutes, more than 20 minutes in a day to myself between pickups and drop-offs with kids and school days with students and family obligations in the evening. I will say, pack a pair of running shoes, find a friend on your campus, and make it a habit at lunch, at break, directly after school. You know how we never leave right after school because traffic is a nightmare getting off of most campuses. Walk. Just walk for 15 minutes. If you start that routine, I promise you, you're going to feel better. And it's so easy to build on a routine, a physical activity routine, once you've started one. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blasts, expands the company's scope to include an emerging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or visit the link in our show notes. By the way, the views expressed in this podcast are my own. Thanks again for listening in. Thanks again for listening in.